So tonight is Matthew 8, the first 17 verses. And um, before we get into that, you can can turn there. Um, I wanted to share about a trip that Mary Beth and I took a few years ago to India, um, to southern India. And um, if you know anything about uh, India, there's a large Hindu population there. And if you know much about Hindu population, you know that um, you might know that I think technically it's illegal, um, but they have a caste system. Have you all heard of the caste system? So there's like the whole, everybody is kind of separated out into, I don't remember if it's five or six different kind of castes, which basically tells you your kind of your social status and what job you're going to have, and it's kind of tied into your last name. And their hope is that by, I think, they, they believe in reincarnation and that hopefully you'll be reincarnated to a higher caste and it kind of goes along with your skin tone like they think the fairer your skin um, maybe the higher of the caste you're in the better the caste you're in um, but we were visiting Mary Beth and I we were on a, a missions trip to southern India to a place that um, was mostly the lowest caste which they're called the untouchables that's like our English word for them um, and the name kind of speaks for itself um, and I have a couple pictures to show you. Um, this was the, the group of some of the kids we worked with. Uh, we were just basically feeding them, uh, playing with them. We had an after-school program for them. Most of them had parents that were absent or, or had to work a lot. And so um, we were just caring for these kids, basically. Um, and one of the girls that we um, loved and got to know was Hema. And this is basically, like, Hema is, so she's an untouchable, the lowest caste. She's a, a female, which also isn't, like, the best. I mean, you'd rather be a male um, in the culture. Um, and she even, she seemed to even have maybe some, some disabilities of some sort. Um, she just didn't seem to be 100% with it like some of the other kids. But sweet, accused anything. And uh, she even had, I don't know if you can see it, but she had like kind of some, something wrong with her skin, kind of in her hair and stuff. I, it may have just been like psoriasis or something, something that was just, um, it, she just didn't have a lot going for her. She had absent parents. And um, so that was her. So we were just um, spending 10 days with her and other kids. Uh, this is a, a church that we visited out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, it was about 10 plastic chairs you can see there in kind of a, hut kind of that they would meet in. Um, one of the things that we did there was this, uh, they have a school there for, um, well, it was for the untouchables and some other other casts. Um, but we did some painting project for the school. And I remember Mary Beth and I thinking, um, like for us, it didn't seem like a big deal to be spending time with the untouchables. Um, and we, after a while, started thinking, why did we, like, it seemed odd that we would spend probably 3,500 bucks a person to raise that, to go to another country and potentially take jobs as painters from locals there by painting this school. And like, why wouldn't we have just sent $3,500 to India, to a church or to a school, and um, and maybe impacted the community more instead of us having to buy a $1,500 plane ticket and all this stuff. Um, but while we were painting uh, this school, on one particular day, we remember talking to a teacher, 
and she was talking about the way that this is, um, the reason that it was so valuable for us and our team of people to be there was uh, because it was showing some of the character of Jesus. Because we were, like here we are, these white people, which they were, they kind of esteemed because we're, I don't know, it's because we were white or American or whatever it was. But um, serving these people who are called untouchable. And so for, even though for us it was kind of like, oh, this is, this is cool. For them it was a big deal. Like it, it, it meant a whole lot um, to them. And we figured out that it wasn't that what we were doing specifically was so important, but that we chose to do what we were doing uh, that was important to them. And, uh, and where I think they saw maybe some of the character of Christ, I hope. Um, we could have done other things with our time and money, but this is what we chose to be uh, involved with. And um, there's just another picture. So our passage today in Matthew 8 um, is about the all-powerful Jesus with all authority breaking cultural norms and speaking, I think, to the community around him in a way that it's hard for us to get uh, just without knowing the kind of cultural context here. So I'm going to do my best to kind of explain um, what's going on. Uh, so far, Matthew, we've seen Matthew kind of explain through Jesus' life how Jesus is, is the king, he's the Messiah, he's God, God with us, he's God's son, he's a teacher, a rabbi, he's a judge, we found out last week. And we ended uh, in chapter 7 hearing, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So Jesus is authoritative, or at least he's talking like he's authoritative. Um, and he was authoritatively making big claims. Like he's claiming, come on. He's claiming things like, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's claiming things like there's only two eternal destinations, uh, destruction and life, and Jesus is setting the parameters for the entrance into that. So these are like, these are enormous claims that he's making, and I don't know about you guys, but like, what do you do if somebody's making big claims, like, I, I can do this, and I can do this, and just, like, prove it. Yeah, you say prove it. <laughs> Uh, if I tell you I can bench press 500 pounds, you're going to be like, okay, just, yeah, do it. Like, show me that you can. Uh, I'm not making that claim. Um, but Matthew's, he, he's speaking primarily to Jews, right? And he's, he's wanting to show them through the life of Jesus that, that Jesus is everything that he claimed to be. And he's done that already through prophecies. We've seen five or six prophecies saying, hey, this guy that, um, that your, your prophet's spoke about would come, he's, he's come, and here's like the fulfillment of these scriptures. But now what he's going to do, I think, is he's going to show the authority of Jesus that's demonstrated in Jesus' actions. And um, so the next three weeks, at least, we're going to see that Jesus, he not only speaks with authority, but he acts with authority. He speaks with authority and he acts with authority. And he, Jesus puts his action where his mouth is. Um, and it's not just Jesus can do a few cool kind of magic tricks, but like he has power to do anything that he wants to do, we're going to see in the next few weeks. We're going to talk about three miracles tonight, three miracles next week, three miracles the following week. And they cover like the gamut of miraculous possibilities 
It's everything from healing the sick to calming a storm to raising somebody from the dead. So it's like, it's anything that he wants to do, he can do. But today I want to look at the first three miracles that Matthew describes. And um, not just look at the fact that Jesus is proving some of his authority and proving that he can do what he wants, but look at the fact, look at what Jesus chooses to do with his authority. So I want us to see tonight. So um, the first miracle involves a, a leper, and so I wanted to describe a little bit about leprosy because it's not something that we know. Um, it's it's not around us much, um, especially here in the states. One commentator's description of leprosy is this. It, he said, it began with little specks on the eyelids and on the palms of the hands and gradually spread over different parts of the body, bleaching the hair white wherever it showed itself, crusting the affected parts of, uh, of skin with shining scales and causing swellings and sores. From the skin, it slowly ate its way through the tissue to the bones and joints and even to the marrow, rotting the whole body piecemeal. The lungs, the organs of speech and hearing and the eyes were attacked in turn till at last consumption or dropsy brought welcome death. The dread of infection kept men aloof from the sufferer, and the law prescribed him as above all men unclean. That's a description of somebody with leprosy. And you can read about what God told, like how do you handle leprosy within the community, what God told Israel in Leviticus 13 and 14. And there's, uh, if, if somebody thought, oh, maybe this person has leprosy, they'd bring them before a priest, the priest would examine them and see how, how deep the sores were and what color the hair was coming out of the sores and all sorts of detailed stuff. There's like a time of quarantine to see are things going to get worse or better. And then at some point, the priest declares this person is either clean or unclean. And if he declares the person's clean, great, it was just some other skin problem and they're fine to, to join back up with the community. If not clean, Leviticus 13 says... The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And so maybe you've heard like leper colonies, but the, the rule, if you live in a place with leprosy, back then especially was don't touch the leper. Like that's, stay away. And probably they're gonna live with the rest of their life. A lot of Jews believed that leprosy was, was as hard to cure as raising someone from the dead. Uh, they get that idea from Second Kings, and it rarely happened that somebody should actually recover from it. It's different now, there's actually cure, a, a cure, a cures to leprosy, um, but at the time not so. Um, if by chance it was healed, or maybe there's a misdiagnosis, the next chapter in Leviticus talks about how you restore that person back into the community. It's again bringing him before the priest, and it's there's animal sacrifice and blood spilled and shaving of all of the hair on the person's body, and it's like a lengthy process to kind of initiate them back as a clean person back into the community. Now, this wasn't just like God being mean and hating on lepers. Like I think a couple things was happening. One, he's I mean, in a very practical way, he's protecting the Israelites from disease. I mean, when you don't have a cure for that, you have to do something. 
But then also, I think on a spiritual level, there was, I think God was showing something with a lot of the stuff he does in the Old Testament, showing something about his character. Because God was dwelling with his people in the tabernacle, uh, in, in um, the temple. And in order for his presence to be there in the Holy of Holies among the Ark, on the Ark of the Covenant, um, he was, God had very particular and rigid requirements of purity and um, people to be undefiled if they were going to approach him. And I think it was that those standards were God saying something about his holiness and his perfection. But leprosy, it's like it was the epitome of uncleanness in the Jewish society or Israelite society. And um, not just not just from a physical standpoint, but um, but it represented being spiritually unclean or being unfit to be in God's presence. Um, I want to show you guys just a couple of pictures of leprosy. If you get kind of queasy, then maybe don't look because it's not like the prettiest thing to look at. But I just want you to see like it's um, it's a it's a horrific thing for those who are going through it. So again, you don't have to watch these. I just got a couple quick pictures. Um, so you can see like this kind of scaly, um, bubbly skin that develops on them if, if it progresses far enough. So. Um, yeah, okay. often affects their eyesight. Like it, it has a direct, for whatever reason, it, it, it's their eyes hard. Um, you guys may have heard, but oftentimes uh, your your um, digits will start to fall off. Not because the leprosy does that per se. I hear, but it's you lose feeling and stuff, and so it's you'll you'll bump and be damaging your fingers, and you don't know it, and eventually you um, have done that. So obviously. Um, yeah, a horrific thing, and I'll take it off the screen now. So, um, so I want to read um, now, so, so you know a little bit about leprosy. Um, now, just the first couple of verses of Matthew eight. Um, when he came down, when Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. He just um, just finished the sermon on the mountain. Now, great crowds are with him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. <coughs> so, uh, an unclean leper who, I don't know for how long, we, we don't hear in the story, but he had been living certainly with some amount of physical pain and maybe worse than that, extreme loneliness, living on the outskirts of towns where Jesus is right now, where he's walking through, and definitely the absence of human touch. Like, um, And so for him to be approaching people was a big deal, and you can imagine he was probably, if he was following what, uh, what he was supposed to in the area, he was probably wearing torn clothes, and he probably had his hair down, he's probably like crying out, unclean, unclean. And there's a large crowd of people around Jesus, so they hear unclean, and they're like scattering and like, hey, look out, you know, get the kids. You know, we've, we've got to protect ourselves because uh, this leper's coming through. Don't touch, right? Like, stay away. And here this guy is kneeling at the feet of Jesus saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus does what is... Um, much more shocking to the people there than we usually read this story. 
Jesus, in verse 3, stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. I wonder what that touch was like. I'll ask you guys a question. Did Jesus have to touch the leper to heal him? No. No. Like, in fact, the next miracle that we look at, he heals somebody from a distance. He doesn't have to touch them. So touch is it's a powerful thing. I think that's being drawn, Matthew's drawing the attention to this. Um, I have a friend named Joseph uh, who was involved with an accident with a tree that had been struck by lightning falling on his leg and he was out in the woods and um, it pinned him down for five hours. He was laying there and his parents finally found him. The end result of all of it was that he, he lost his leg so it was amputated from like just below the knee. Um, yeah, just had like maybe a five or six inch stuff there. And um, I, I remember a time that Joseph and I were, I think we were on a missions trip or something together, which he's a stud, like you don't even know. He wears a prosthetic leg and he does literally everything and everything better than probably I can do uh, physically, basketball and whatever else. But um, we were on a trip together and at the end of the day, Joseph was, um, uh, he was cleaning his stump and so he had taken off his prosthesis and he had his leg kind of up over a sink and he was washing it. Um, and I remember having a conversation with him that was uh, um, just very interesting. Somehow or another, I got to where I was like helping him wash his, his leg. And in our conversation, he was telling me how meaningful it is for him to have somebody touch his leg. And so I... I couldn't remember the story exactly, and I emailed Joseph a couple days ago, and he got back to me, and I said, what, like, not with me specifically, but what's, what is that touch like? And so Joseph wrote this email for us to um, hear at the church. He said, um, he said, my stump is often hidden in my socket of my prosthesis. When people notice my leg, they will take double takes. Kids have no shame, and they'll stare and ask questions, and this embarrasses their parents, but I enjoy it. and put a little happy face. Um, he said, when I take off my artificial leg, many people are, un are uncomfortable looking at my stump. Some think it's fascinating. Few are willing to touch it. When someone is intrigued, not scared of my leg, and wants to touch it, I love it. It is not, it's, it's nice not feeling like a freak who no one wants to touch. It's not very often that people touch my leg, so that probably adds to the uniqueness and specialness of those moments. Touch is a powerful thing. For me, it communicates acceptance. And so I read that to say you, you can start to imagine what it must have felt like for, for a leper to feel the touch of another human being. And again, Jesus didn't have to touch him, but I love that that's how Jesus chose to, um, to heal this leper, is by touch. And it wasn't just Jesus like, healing like he reset a, a broken arm, but he, it was a cleansing. Um, this man lived outside of town, right? And he, had, he went from shouting out, being around other people, unclean, anytime he was around people, he, and, and not fit or not right to be in the presence of people, and people probably assuming he had done all sorts of sin to, in order to get leprosy. He went from that 
to a touch from Jesus, not only being healed, but Jesus says, be clean. And I can just imagine how what that would have felt like. Um, going on, verse 4 says, And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them or a testimony to them. Jesus is just saying, do what Leviticus 14 says. You've been made clean, now go to the priest and go through uh, whatever is prescribed there in order for you to be kind of received back into the community. Before we move on, I want to ask you guys, what was the heart, um, the posture, or the attitude of the leper before he was healed, like as he was approaching Jesus? What are some ways you describe that, or what do you read? Humble, because he says, if you will. Humble, yeah. Like he's not demanding of it. Yeah. I think it was very bold to go in front of Jesus in the first place. Sure. He's like, Make, this is my last shot. This is all I got. Yeah. I'll just go for it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, bold. Um, and it seems confident that Jesus had the power to do something. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. It's like... Mm-hmm. Recognition of his power. And then um, reverence, he knelt before him. Yeah. And approaching him. Yeah. That kneeling before is usually that word, proskuneo, is translated worship. Mm-hmm. I only know that because I was a worship pastor and so I had to move. Um, but, but that, I mean, it's it's a very reverent kneeling down, bowing down before. What does he address Jesus as? What title? Lord. Lord. It's kind of like master or there's some authority there so he believed Jesus was able he believed Jesus was Lord to some extent so he believed Jesus had power and to some extent he was showing a submission or reverence to that I think we can learn something from that I think the the proper response to authority like Jesus is humility before him and I think the leper does a good job of demonstrating that and what would you say the leper, his his request to be healed, what was he demonstrating in that? Like, is there a word that could sum that up? Faith. Faith, yeah. Um, good. So he, he believes Jesus has authority and power, and he's kneeling humbly before him. That, that sounds a lot like faith. And faith is going to be a really important theme that we see, especially in the next couple chapters and throughout Matthew. Um, but we'll see in almost every example very clearly that healing is preceded by faith. Like when Jesus heals people, we're going to see, especially in the next couple of weeks, it's, it's, there's always, it's, or it's often a response to somebody's faith. So, the next little section, a centurion. Just before we read it, just to, again, kind of let you know what that means. A centurion is a Roman um, commander of a hundred people or so. Centurion, that's kind of where the name comes from probably a Gentile, so in kind of the Jewish mindset, just because of his race, he's kind of an an unclean person, so to speak. He's certainly not going through any ceremonial uh, cleaning procedures. Um, And probably especially um, despised by the Jews, a centurion would be because he kind of represented the, the Roman authority, the oppressive Roman authority and the emperor. And so it's that man that's approaching Jesus that we're going to read about. 
And in many ways, he's the opposite of the status of the leper as far as power and authority, but in many ways we're going to see very similar. And certainly just as to the Jewish reader, just as like despised or like, ooh, don't, don't mess with them. So um, verse 5 says, When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So we'll talk about those last phrases in just a second, but what's the what's the attitude or the, the posture of this centurion coming before Jesus. I'm so humble. Humble, yeah. He's, he says Lord in both of his sentences. That's how he addresses Jesus. What's another clue that shows his humility? I'm not worthy. Yeah, he's like, I'm not worthy even to have you come into my house. You can imagine, like, th- this is a, a Roman commander talking to a, just a regular Jewish dude saying, I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. So it's like there's some significant respect and humility that, that wouldn't do. It was significant. So again, it was very similar to the leper in saying that it seems as though the centurion believes God is able to do something. He is calling him Lord. He believes Jesus has some power and he's um, willing to humbly put himself before Jesus. So again, I think it's good to see a, a proper response to authority is humility. Um, and similarly, the centurion's request, I think, is demonstrating faith. And so because of his faith, Jesus acts. So we see in verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So verse 11, well, first Jesus marvels at the faith of the centurion, and then he says there's going to be people coming from the east and the west, which is probably synonymous with just Gentiles, people outside of Israel who are going to be joining Jesus in feast at table in heaven, in the kingdom of heaven. And this, again, is, we've talked about it a little bit, and it will continue on through the book of Matthew. This is, this is a, a new idea that doesn't necessarily go over well with the Jewish community, that we're seeing that, that Gentiles, non-Jews, are actually acceptable in the kingdom of God if they are demonstrating faith. And um, so he says the sons of the kingdom, which probably stands for the Jews, some of them, if they're not demonstrating faith, it's kind of like Jesus told the religious leaders in chapter 3, he's like, hey, just because you're a son of Abraham, that's not, like, I can make rocks into the sons of Abraham. It's, that's not good, and that's not your ticket um, into the kingdom of heaven, so to speak. Um, and though Matthew's speaking directly to Jews here, I think here's what we can learn. Anyone who does not exercise faith in Jesus, recognizing him as, as God's authority, humbly submitting to him as Lord, 
will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but will be cast into darkness. And anyone who does exercise faith um, will find themselves there. So, uh, verse 13, And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Almost like an, an afterthought, almost. Like the, the big point of that paragraph seems to be the, the faith the centurion was showing. And once again, we see that healing is preceded by faith here. Um, the last little chunk, when Jesus entered Peter's house, which Mary Beth and I have been there, or what they think is was Peter's house. We didn't, you can't like walk inside of it. It's like way down in the ground, but it's in Capernaum where he's at here, and um, there's good reason to believe historically that um, it's the actual location. Kind of cool. These actually happened, like this is real stuff. Um, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. I want to point out three things about this healing. Uh, first of all, and just really quickly, this is an example of Jesus doesn't do all of his healing in a public area. Like This is just in the privacy of home, it seems. Um, so it's not like Jesus is just putting on a show. I mean, he is wanting to show who he is when he does it in public. But here in the privacy of Peter's house, um, I think that may communicate something about Jesus actually like caring for people, even if there's not a lot of people around to see. Um, secondly, and we'll see this repeated over and over again, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law is instantaneous. And, and complete and total and obvious. Um, it says in verse 14, he found her lying sick with a fever, like literally having been thrown down is what the original language means. So she's she's very sick. I don't know if she's responsive or not. But And then the next verse, verse 15, he touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and she began to serve them or began to wait on them. And then because he goes on to kind of later that evening, it sounds like this is all over the course of like a few hours maybe. So this is like an instantaneous thing you're going to see in the, in the future healings of, of Jesus and the apostles. It's, it's, it's not like, oh, he kind of healed them, but there, it was obvious and apparent for the people. And same thing with the centurion, right? It says at that moment, at the very moment that Jesus said the servant was healed, um, is there something that hints to it? Maybe Jesus stretched out his hand immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. So um, just wanted to point that out. And then thirdly, and kind of where we'll camp out to end, I want to look at who Jesus was willing to heal. Because in the kind of contemporary Jewish law, it would prohibit Jesus, certainly from touching uh, somebody with a fever, that would be kind of a sort of uncleanness. Um, but it wasn't just someone with a fever, but it was a woman. And we've talked before about how especially a, a Jewish rabbi, it would definitely be looked down upon for him to, to touch a woman unless it was a, a family member or child or wife. Um, But it makes no difference to Jesus like that, that maybe this woman was a, considered in the day a second-class citizen. Um, he reaches out, he defies whatever the societal norm is, and he touches her hand and she's healed. 
And Jesus had healed other quote-unquote second-class kind of citizens by Jewish standards just of the day. He healed a leper, the epitome of uncleanness. He healed a Gentile centurion who represented probably oppressive Rome. And now he's healing another person in society who was less than a sick woman. And I don't think it's by accident that Matthew chooses the, the first three miracles that he describes in the gospel in his in his gospel are miracles of healing for a leper, a Gentile, and a woman. And I think what Matthew is saying maybe to the to the Jewish people who maybe kind of thought, yeah, we've kind of got it together. We're we're the people that Jesus doesn't care how dirty you are. He doesn't care if you have an ugly past. He doesn't care what ethnic past you have or religion you've come out of. He doesn't care your gender. He doesn't care how society values you or doesn't value you. You can be the scum of the earth and it doesn't faze Jesus. And when he touches you, you'll be made clean. So verse 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. We'll talk more about that in coming weeks. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. So Jesus heals more people, who knows how many more. And he says this was done to fulfill what this prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before had said. He took our illnesses, he bore our diseases from Isaiah 53. And I think maybe some of what Matthew is doing here, because he kind of, he's arranging these events on purpose. He's not trying to be as chronological as maybe Luke or another gospel writer would be. He's, he's, he's teaching about Jesus with the way that he puts things down here. Um, but I think what we've seen is Matthew's showing Jesus who he is as, as king and messiah. We saw through his genealogy as God. We, we see in his birth. We've seen him as this authoritative rabbi and judge. And not only does he have all authority or is speaking with all authority, and not only is he able then to, to, to make good on that authority and back it up with miracles, but what does he do with the highest amount of authority any human being, God, could have with that highest authority he comes into our sickened world, and he touches the lowliest of things and the things that ought not to be touched, and he heals and he makes clean, which we're going to see near the end of the book, was accomplished at the great expense of his life. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So Jesus has all authority. I would say we are all, in a sense, unclean and unfit in and of ourselves for the presence of God, similar to a leper. And Jesus chooses with all of the authority that he has to reach down to us and to make us clean, those that exercise faith in him. And Jesus opens up his kingdom doors, not to the religious or those people who kind of clean up themselves, but to those who by faith humbly come before him and say, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Um, I want to read something that will take uh, several minutes. It's, it's a story of kind of a fictional um, story that a guy named Walter Wengeren wrote. It's called The Ragman. I don't know if you guys, anybody heard of Ragman before? Um, 
And I think it just does a good job kind of illustrating a little bit about who Jesus is and what, what it was like, maybe what Matthew's talking about here. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Which, by the way, Matthew's talking kind of in a physical sense. He's been talking about miracles. But other New Testament writers even more clearly um, are, are, are using that in a spiritual sense. And even the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament takes that verse in Isaiah and talks more about like iniquity and sin. And so it's, it, it seems to be both. Jesus is entering our world physically, and he's, he's doing things and touching things and interacting in a way that, um, that only God can, and he's showing something with that. And at the same time, we're seeing through his life that he's um, that he's going to take on truly the sin um, of those who believe and follow him. So, um, just a, a story to end here, and then um, have a couple closing thoughts. I saw a strange sight. I stumbled upon a story most strange, like nothing in my life, my street sense, my sly tongue had ever prepared me for. Hush, child, hush now, and I will tell it to you. Even before the dawn one Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes, both bright and new, and he was calling in a clear tenor voice, Rags! Ah, the air was foul, and the first light filthy to be crossed by such sweet music. Rags! New rags for old. I take your tired rags. Rags. Now this is a wonder, I thought to myself, for the man stood six feet four, and his arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular, and his eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this, to be a ragman in the inner city? I followed him. My curiosity drove me, and I wasn't disappointed. Soon the ragman saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief sighing and shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his cart, quietly walked up to the woman, stepping around tin cans, dead toys, pampers. Give me your rag, he said gently, and I'll give you another. He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes. She looked up, and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined. She blinked from the gift to the giver. Then as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief to his own face, and then he began to weep, to sob as grievously as she had done, his shoulders shaking. Yet she was left without a tear. This is a wonder I breathed to myself, and I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who can't turn away from mystery. Rags, rags, new rags for old. In a little while, when the sky showed gray behind the rooftops and I could see the shredded curtains hanging out black windows, the ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty. Blood soaked her bandage, a single line of blood ran down her cheek. Now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity and he drew a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me a rag, he said, tracing his own line on her cheek, and I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage, removed it, and tied it to his own head. The bonnet he set on hers, and I gasped at what I saw, for with the bandage went the wound. Against his brow it ran a darker, more substantial blood, his own. Rags, 
rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. The sun hurt both the sky now and my eyes. The ragman seemed more and more to hurry. Are you going to work? He asked a man who leaned against a telephone pole. The man shook his head. The ragman pressed him. Do you have a job? Are you crazy? Sneered the other. He pulled away from the pole, revealing the right sleeve of his jacket flat, the cuff stuffed into the pocket. He had no arm. So said the ragman, give me your jacket and I will give you mine. So much quiet authority in his voice. The one-armed man took off his jacket, so did the ragman, and I trembled at what I saw, for the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve, and when the other put it on, he had two good arms, thick as tree limbs, but the ragman had only one. Go to work, he said. After that, he found a drunk lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man hunched, wizened, and sick. He took that blanket and wrapped it around himself, but for the drunk, he left new clothes. And now I had to run to keep up with the ragman, though he was weeping uncontrollably, bleeding freely at the forehead, pulling a cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, old, and sick. Yet he went with terrible speed. On spider's legs, he skittered through the alleys of the city, this mile and the next, until he came to its limits, and then he rushed beyond. I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow. And yet I needed to see where he was going in such haste, perhaps to know what drove him so. The little old ragman, he came to a landfill. He came to the garbage pits. And I waited to help him, and, and I hung back, hiding. He climbed a hill. With tormented labor, he cleared a little space on that hill. Then he sighed. He laid down. He pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket. He covered his bones with an army blanket, and he died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junked car and wailed and mourned as one who has no hope, because I had come to love the red man. Every other face had faded in the wonder of this man, and I cherished him. But he died. I sobbed myself to sleep. I did not know, how could I know, that I slept through Friday night and Saturday, and it's night too. But then on Sunday morning, I was wakened by a violence. Light, pure, hard, the demanding light, slammed against my sour face, and I blinked, and I looked, and I saw the last and the first wonder of all. There was the ragman, folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead, but alive. And besides that, healthy. There was no sign of sorrow or age, and all the rags that he had gathered shined for cleanliness. Well, then I lowered my head, trembling for all that I had seen. I walked myself up to the ragman. I told him my name with shame, for I was a sorry figure next to him. Then I took off all my clothes in that place, and I said to him with dear yearning in my voice, dress me. He dressed me, my Lord, he put new rags on me, and I am a wonder beside him, the ragman, the ragman Christ. And that do a good job, I think, just describing uh, some of what, in both a, a 
physical, but more than that, a spiritual sense. I think Jesus subjects himself to uh, for our healing. Let me pray and then have a couple of discussion things. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Thanks for giving us this account of um, some of the things that you did in your life here. Um, thank you that you had somebody like Matthew to record these things for us. I pray that as we look to your word, as we learn um, the story about your life and what you did, um, that it wouldn't just be uh, neat or interesting, but that we would truly see little glimpses of, of who you are and that we would learn about your heart and that we would see tonight clearly that you, you're able to do whatever you want to physically, spiritually. Everything is under your control. You, you're, Jesus was acting under the authority of you, Father, and, um, and because of that, he could accomplish whatever he wanted to. So um, we see the authority that you have, Lord, and then we also see how you choose to use that in the lives of people, all of us, who are undeserving of, of, of any goodness, of any cleanness. Yet you, um, for those who believe you, who believe in your power, who submit to you as our Lord, you have made us clean. And you've made us clean not without great expense. Jesus on the cross taking on, not just physically what we deserve, but taking on the wrath of you, God. And so we thank you for it, Lord. I pray that we would live lives in submission to Jesus. We'd live lives of thankfulness, and we would just be impressed with the love of Jesus. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.